Hi there, and welcome to this bonus episode of Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Today, we're continuing our journey into the history of Canada as seen through the prism of the Hudson's Bay Company as it turns 350 years old. And on this episode, our journey takes us inside a Hudson's Bay Company trading post back in the 1870s and 1880s, when the HBC was just past its peak as a fur trading empire. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll recognize this voice from our waterfall of explorer voices at the start of our regular episodes. We left Simpson about June the 10th with the fur brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. That is Charles Campbell. He's the founding president of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. He also happens to be my great-grandfather, and that recording is from a 78 record my mother had stored away in her basement. It's from a radio program in the late 1930s called My Hometown. At the time, Campbell was the Canadian Deputy Minister of Mines and Natural Resources. But in his younger days, he was one of Canada's leading explorers, having mapped several hundred thousand square kilometers of the Canadian North, mostly by canoe. His love and understanding of the North began at a very young age. Campbell was the son of an English HBC Factor father and a Métis mother, born at a fur trading post in 1876 in the Northwest Territories. The recording itself is a bit scratchy in places due to its age. Its age also taints some of the language and notions with regards to First Nations, but it is still a remarkable first-person oral history of what life was like in an HBC post back when the company was just 200 years old. Here is Charles Campbell. Statisticians say that there are 11 million people in the Dominion of Canada. But I wonder how many of these 11 millions ever heard of the small fur trading post off Fort Lear, situated in northwestern Canada, very near the point where the boundary between the Yukon and Northwest Territories cuts the northern boundary of British Columbia. This might be called my hometown, for I was born there. At that time, it was a group of half a dozen houses with a population of some eight or ten persons. It is one of the most isolated posts of the Hudson's Bay Company. The modern person with the radio, the motor car, and the airplane doesn't know what isolation is. At Fort Lear, when I was born, our next-door neighbors were at Fort Simpson, 180 miles away to the northeast and at Fort Nelson, some 150 miles to the southwest, perhaps 20 people in all. While to the north, west, south, and east were hundreds of miles of densely forested wilderness of mountain or plain, occupied only by a few roving families of Indians. The nearest doctor was 1,500 miles away, and it would have taken six months to get him. Sickness or accident had to be treated by the most simple and primitive methods. I remember when Bishop Bumpus cut off David Villeneuve's leg with a carpenter's saw and a butcher knife, while David smoked his pipe and stoically watched him do it. Contact with our neighbors and through them with the outside world was made only twice a year. Once in summer when the York Boat Brigade came in with supplies of trading goods and provisions, and again in winter when the mail was brought in by dog team. The rest of the year was unbroken by visits, except for the arrival from time to time of a few Indians who came to trade their furs for tea, tobacco, or ammunition. However, 
I don't think of what we are as my hometown, and I remember very little of it. Because when I was about four years old, my father moved to Fort Simpson, the fur trading headquarters of the Mackenzie River District. Before we leave Fort Lior, I want to tell you about an incident of my last visit to that place about four years ago. It illustrates the point that the expression town for Fort Lior is quite in order. I'd come across the mountains from the Pacific coast by airplane, looking for the mythical tropical valley. I hadn't seen Fort Lior for 35 years. But there was no mistaking it, for it had changed very little. The collection of log houses in the small clearing was only a scar in the interminable forest from the plain. But it was a very welcome sight. It was more than a homing coming to me. It was the end of a somewhat critical flight across several hundred miles of unexplored mountains, and we were nearly out of gas. We stopped at the mission house at the upper end of the settlement. At the other, a third of a mile away through the bush was the Hudson's Bay Company's establishment with about four more log houses. Sometime after supper, I asked the priest where my companion, Dan McLean, was. Oh, he said, I guess he's gone downtown, meaning the Hudson's Bay house. Dan was spending the night in my old hometown with the Hudson's Bay manager, actually in the house where I was born. Fort Simpson is situated on an island in the Mackenzie River at the mouth of the R River. I prefer to think of it as my hometown because I lived there for four years until I left the North to go to school. Life at Simpson wasn't very different to that at Leard, except there was more of it. Being the fur trading headquarters of the whole Mackenzie River district, it had perhaps a dozen more people. At either end of the clearing were the missions, Anglican and Roman Catholic. In the middle was the Hudson's Bay Fort, enclosed by a high picket fence inside which were the officers' quarters, storehouses, office buildings, and the inevitable flagstaff. Behind and up against the forest were the servants' and other men's houses. On either side of the fort were the cultivated fields. Surrounding the whole on two sides and on the back was the dense northern forest, while in front was the broad sweep of the Mackenzie River, here almost exactly a mile wide. Life at Fort Simpson in the early 80s of the last century was primitive, but as I see it now, not unpleasant. Spring and fall were the busy seasons. In the spring, gardens had to be planted and boats built or repaired for the York boat trip to the Long Portage. And in the fall, fuel and fish and other food must be put up for the winter and snowshoes and toboggans and other winter gear overhauled. Spring also was the time for making birch syrup and soap from wood, ash, and grease. Candles provided the only light, and they were made in the fall from moose or deer fat. To live in the far north with any degree of comfort, one must have resourcefulness and initiative. But more than these qualities in the time that I speak of, and even today, one must have foresight, because one had to anticipate and provide for his needs months ahead. For example, requisitions for goods and other supplies required from the outside were made out in the early spring of one year for delivery in the fall of the following year, 16 months later. Very little food was imported into the north in those days. The post manager was allowed 100 pounds of flour, 20 pounds of tea, and 20 pounds of sugar for the year. The rest of his requirements had to be obtained from the country. Fish, rabbits, ducks, and geese, moose, and caribou meat. Frequently there was hardship and sometimes death 
among the Indians from starvation, particularly when the rabbits were scarce. Our diversions and amusements were simple. Every man had a line of traps or rabbit snares, which he visited once a week throughout the winter. Indoors, we had occasional dances to the music of the fiddle and card games, chess and checkers. Simpson was unique in that it had a billiard table imported by my father from England. There was also an excellent library of several hundred volumes. The houses were heated by wood stoves or fireplaces, and light was provided by candles. While there was a definite daily and annual routine to the life at Simpson, as at every other trading post, there were certain events that stood out in high relief. There was the departure of the York Boat Brigade for the Long Portage early in June, and its return three months later. A voyageur was only considered to have reached manhood when he had made this journey. Next came the fall duck hunt and the fishery at Great Slave Lake, which produced some 50 or 60,000 whitefish for winter use. Then the freeze-up of the river, the return of the caribou hunters, with the first sled loads of meat, and the luxury of marrow bones pinched from these sleds and cooked in the ashes of the fireplace. Then came the time when the short winter days began to lengthen, followed almost immediately by the New Year's Day celebrations. When the flag went up, guns were fired, everybody went visiting, and there was a grand ball and feast in the evening. The arrival of the March packet with news of the outside world was the next event, and finally, the arrival of spring. These were the high points of the year, and has endured the long, cold winter, can fully appreciate the meaning of spring. Even after an interval of 40 years, the memories of springtime are the most vivid of all my northern experiences. To pass from winter to spring is like entering a new world and a renewal of one's youth. No other event in the whole yearly calendar was so eagerly awaited or so significant. Educational facilities at Simpson were very limited. What we had was provided by that saintly old man, Bishop Bumpus. But he was away a great part of the time, carrying the gospel to the natives in their camps. So, as we grew up, the boys of my family were sent to school at Winnipeg. When I was eight, my turn came to go away to school, and the long journey of over three months to Winnipeg had to be made. We left Simpson about June the 10th with the fur brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by ten voyageurs. For these were the days after the passing of the freighting canoe and before the coming of the steamboat. The York boat is an open craft built on the lines of a Viking ship about 40 feet long, propelled by eight oars. The engine crew towed the boat to the line to the shore, and only in dead water did they row with the long 16-foot oars. We traveled as much as 16 hours a day and camped every night on the beach, usually without shelter, but always under a mosquito net. There were my father and mother and five children, of whom I was the oldest. I have always considered that in my mother's long, active, and eventful life, her greatest accomplishment was the care and handling of those five children on that long journey. As we proceeded southward, other boats joined the brigade at each post, until it numbered well over a hundred voyageurs. It was a stirring sight, particularly at camping time and in the morning, when one crew vied with the other for the reputation of being the first away. The route of the brigade lay up Mackenzie River and across Great Slave Lake then up the Slave River to Fort Smith, 
Here, the 16-mile portage was made in ox carts. My father and I rode across the portage in style on a horse. From Fitzgerald, or Smith's Landing, as it was then called, the newly built stern wheel steamer Graham took us up to Athabasca Lake and up the Athabasca River to McMurray. From there again to the York boats to Clearwater River to the Long Portage, which constituted the great divide between Mackenzie River and Hudson's Bay waters. Here the fur brigades from the north met those from the south, and for days their crews were engaged in transporting goods or fur packs across the 12 miles of the portage. At one time, everything had to be carried over on men's backs, 200 pounds to the load and one trip across each day. From this point, after exchanging its fur packs for trading goods, the Mackenzie River Brigade returned north and we transferred to the Southern Brigade. Beyond the Long Portage, travel was continued by York boats past Eel Lacrosse and up Beaver River to the head of Green Lake, where navigation ended. We traveled in ox carts over a newly cut bush trail, which led from there to Prince Albert, then a thriving village of one street. By the more modern and comfortable method of horses and wagons, we crossed the prairies to Fort Capel, passing Humboldt and Touchwood Hills, the only settlements on the way. Canadian Pacific Railway then brought us to Winnipeg about the middle of September. Today, I make the journey in a day and a half. I stayed in Winnipeg through school and college, and it was ten years before I saw the hometown again. The change in the character of the place was even then beginning, and was starting to lose some of the atmosphere of the fur trading post, which it has now almost completely lost. Simpson today enjoys the luxury of the radio, aeroplanes, electric lights, central heating, and even unemployment relief. The romance has gone from the old hometown. That was Dr. Charles Campbell, founding president of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and one of Canada's foremost northern explorers. To learn more about Campbell and his many incredible expeditions in the Canadian North, I encourage you to check out his fascinating memoir, Son of the North, published by Ryerson Press. It's out of print now, but you can find it in libraries and from second-hand bookstores online. Also, in Canadian Geographic, the magazine he helped found 90 years ago, I wrote an article in 2019 titled Return to the Peel, about the journey I took with my son Graham and cousin Terry Campsell down the Wind and Peel Rivers. We followed the route mapped by Campsell in 1905, relying on his map and diaries to guide us for most of the journey. You can find that story online at canadiangeographic.ca. And while you're there, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the magazine, which gives you even more great content about Canada, its people, landscape, waterways, and wilderness. Visit canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe. This special series on the history of the Hudson's Bay Company is brought to you by HBC Heritage. Learn more about the incredible history of the Hudson's Bay Company by going to hbcheritage.ca. That's it for this episode of Explore. Canadian Geographic podcast. Join us next time as we delve into the remarkable Hudson's Bay Company collection at the Manitoba Museum. So until then, when we explore again, I'm David McGuffin.